You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Coming up on the April 12th edition of Eye on the Triangle, if you're happy and you know it, go to state. A rabid donkey reaps doom from rural, for rural Durham. Following news is my holy crap editorial and the VIP segment on food stamps and a little taste of full frame. I'm Evan Garris. And I'm John Boyer. We'll get back to the rabid donkey in a minute. It's 75 degrees at 702. We start out on campus tonight where North Carolina State University ranks amongst the 100 happiest colleges in America, according to a new list put out by the Daily Beast website. By considering factors like dining, housing, nightlife, indebtedness, retention rate, and even weather conditions, the survey puts NCSU in the number 62 spot. Davidson, UNC, Virginia, and Duke all ranked ahead of state, while Virginia Tech, Wake Forest, and Clemson were slightly behind. Now, fortunately for us, we didn't make it to the Daily Beast list of the most stressful colleges, where Duke, Wake Forest, UNC, and Virginia also ranked among the highest. Apparently, it's possible to be stressed and happy. 205, that's the number of cases of rabbit animals in Durham since 1998. Today, the News & Observer reports the latest addition to that list, a donkey in northern Durham County. Animal Control believes that a rabid wild animal transferred the virus to the poor brute. Livestock don't need to be vaccinated according to state law, but cats and dogs do. Check with your veterinarian to be sure. Russia and the European Union marked a day of mourning Monday after the deaths of Polish President Lech Kaczynski, the First Lady, and numerous other top members of the Polish political and military establishment. All were killed when a plane bound for Poland crashed in Russia this past Saturday. The president and his entourage were part of a delegation to Russia intended to commemorate the Katyn massacre, where more than 20,000 Polish citizens were killed by Russian soldiers during World War II. A two-minute moment of silence was held on Sunday, and the president's body will lie in state on Tuesday, according to France 24. Last Friday, Justice John Paul Stevens announced his retirement from the United States Supreme Court. With 34 years of adjudication under his belt, Stevens is the longest-serving justice currently on the bench and a noted member of the court's liberal wing. Stevens was nominated by Gerald Ford in 1975 and was confirmed only 19 days later. A graduate of the University of Chicago and Northwestern University School of Law, Justice Stevens is an avid golfer, bridge player, and pilot. The New York Times reports that he has written over 600 dissents over the course of his time on the bench. In science news, scientists at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories in California, in conjunction with Russian scientists, last week announced their discovery of a new chemical element. Its temporary name is Ununceptium, its atomic number is 117, and it sits at the very bottom right of the periodic table. The San Francisco Chronicle reports that it took 150 days of atom smashing in Russia to create six atoms of the new element, which is highly radioactive and disintegrates almost instantly. Well, the poor kid can't even get on roller coasters, but stumbled across one of the most important scientific discoveries of the decade. In 2008, then-nine-year-old Matthew Berger was accompanying his paleontologist father on a dig in South Africa. The kid turned over a rock and noticed a child's jawbone embedded within it. The discovery was officially announced last week, according to the Huffington Post. Scientists believe that the two-million-year-old Australopithecus sediba fossil is a critical link between apes and man. As our faithful listeners will know, we've been following closely the moves of Conan O'Brien all year, and it looks like he's finally got a new home on television. CNN says the former Tonight Show host has landed a contract with TBS. His new show will start in November and air at 11 p.m. This will push George Lopez to midnight, and ironically enough, Conan left NBC for that very same programming decision. On this day, there are some days where it seems as if nothing interesting happened on that particular date in history. Today presents quite the opposite situation. Here follows some of the many momentous events on the past April 12th. 
On this day in 1776, the North Carolina Provincial Congress passed the Halifax Resolves, becoming the first colony to make an official endorsement of independence from Great Britain. The Civil War officially began today in 1861 when Confederate forces fired on Union-held Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. They would surrender the battle the next day, but win the war exactly four years later. In 1945, President Franklin Roosevelt died of a cerebral hemorrhage in Warm Springs, Georgia. Vice President Harry Truman was sworn in to succeed him. Ten years later, in 1955, Dr. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine is declared safe and effective. In 1961, the first manned space flight is achieved by Soviet astronaut Yuri Gagarin. Another space milestone came 20 years later when the first space shuttle Columbia launched from Cape Canaveral. In 1999, President Clinton is cited for contempt of court for giving intentionally false statements during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And if that isn't enough, Euro Disney turns 18 years old today. But it doesn't end there. This is one of the busiest and most tragic weeks in history. The next eight days contain the anniversaries of, get this, Apollo 13, Lincoln's assassination, the sinking of the Titanic, Tiananmen Square, the Bay of Pigs, shootings at Virginia Tech and Columbine, the Great San Francisco earthquake, the Waco fire, and the Oklahoma City bombing. And to top it all off, Hitler's birthday. Speaking of birthdays, birthday shout-outs go to actor Andy Garcia, who is turning 54. David Letterman is 63. And children's author Beverly Cleary is now a ripe old 94 years old. Author Christopher Hitchens turns 61 tomorrow. In weather, there isn't much excitement here in the weather department. Sure, today was nice, but it's pretty much the same story for tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 70s and mostly clear skies. A slight change is in store for Wednesday, which sees increased clouds, some light showers in the morning, and temperatures backing off into the upper 60s. The nice weather makes a comeback for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, with temperatures close to 80 and just enough sunshine. Pollen remains a problem, though it's nowhere near as bad as last week. Levels will remain high for the next four days, according to pollen.com. Right now, it's 75 degrees and partly cloudy at RDU Airport. The time, 7.08. Eye on the Triangle continues next with the editorial. Stay with us right here. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. Sometimes the heavy hand of truth hits you as hard as the insatiable wrath of the Old Testament God did to the unsuspecting Midianites. With the latest admission of chilling sexual perversity that apparently runs rampant within its ranks, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church has delivered a similar knockout blow not only to its membership, but also to a dumbfounded public worldwide. Rather than immediately admit to the torture and rape of two, over 200 children in adolescence by a demented priest at a Catholic school for the deaf, the highest echelons of church leadership conspire to conceal what is a vile and obvious crime. Now that documents have emerged detailing the leadership's complicity in this cover-up, Pope Benedict XVI, Benedict the Beneficent, asks for your forgiveness and implores you to turn the other cheek. My disgust prevents me from doing just that. In no uncertain terms, this man and his subversive minions are guilty of criminal conspiracy. In no uncertain terms, this man and his subversive minions are guilty of criminal conspiracy. For far too long has this pope and a legion of popes past served as obedient mafia wives to the pedophiles and pederasts permeating the very institution they are charged with leading. I think it only rational to second the calls of the brave few that have demanded this man's arrest, for it is as symbolic as it is practical. In my good book, and I know there are others just like me, protecting those guilty of binding and raping children is unforgivable. 
The arrest and trial of a man responsible for belittling such overwhelming trauma is at best an, is the best attempt at reconciliation. More cleansing than seas filled with holy water, more therapeutic than 10 million Hail Marys. That's why I say the Pope may take his apology, fold it five ways, and place it where the light of Christ doesn't shine. Turn the other cheek? Let's turn the Pope's other cheek and with the long, white-hot iron of long-overdue justice brand it with, to borrow from a popular author, the new motto of the Catholic clergy, no child's behind left. Tonight I'll leave you with a reworked version of the Apostles' Creed submitted to me by a good friend and former Catholic. We're peeved at Benedict, the Holy Father self-righteous, Christ's supposed presence on earth. We'd be relieved if he'd go on leave after deceiving the grieving in Ireland, California, Wisconsin, and Austria. A priest was convicted by the power of a criminal court, but defrocking wasn't necessary. More suffered under pedophile priests were sodomized, cast aside, and ignored. They wanted their priests expelled. At the next church, he raped again. Not apprehended into prison, he is shuffled with the right hand of the cardinal. He refused again to judge a priest living in sin. We believed in the Holy Father and the Holy Catholic Church, whose forgiveness of sins and protection of erections cause pain everlasting. Amen. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. Don't believe a word I say Whatever gets you through the day You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Coming up after the break, uh, we'll be checking in with Community Canvas for their coverage of the Art to Wear, as well as the full frame events of the past weekend. And then uh, Chris Trophy will be bringing us a story on food stamps. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. For Eye on the Triangle on Community Canvas, I am Mike. Sejra has the week off. Uh, as well as Kieran. Kieran produced a segment that we'll hear for Community Canvas pretty soon about full-frame documentary festival that happened last week. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to talk about Art to Wear, an annual event. I am currently joined by Lauren Boynton from the Design and the Textile School here at NC State, as well as Eleanor Hoffman, who is in the Design School. And Eleanor, you are the director of Art to Wear, is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, <laughs> so I did, a little, I did a little homework and found out that Art to Wear is a collaborative show between NC State's College of Textiles and College of Design, uh, and that this is the ninth annual show, uh, and it it will, as usual, emphasize a fusion of art and fashion, making it anything but the typical fashion show. Now, I'm not exactly a fashion show connoisseur myself, so um, do you guys want to talk about how it's not the typical fashion show, some of the ways that it's not? Um, it's a lot more artistic, I think um, it's got ready-to-wear clothes and artistic pieces that could or could not be worn during the day or out on the town. Uh-huh. So some of these pieces might get some interesting looks if you wore them out on the town. Um, and you guys have designed in the past both, right? True. Okay. Uh, so what were some of the things that you did last year? Um, last year, I designed a collection called At the Beach, and it was really um, minimal and inspired by, like, what you see on the beach, like mm-hmm. seashells and fish. Right. Cool. And and did, what did you do last year? Um, I was actually in it two years ago, and mine was based on Victorian clothing, and I was trying to modernize it. My collection this year is way better. Oh, yeah? I matured a lot. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and so, Eleanor, what is your collection this year? Um, it, Are you allowed to say? <laughs> it's 
kind of supposed to be what the viewer feels when they look at it, but it's based on images from an enchanted forest and um, the song, just some songs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so you said you did it two years ago and you did it again this year. So there's a pretty pretty competitive selection process for designers, right? Who who And do they have to be NC State students? Yes, they have to be um, NC State students. Well, it's always been like said they were supposed to be in textiles or design, mm-hmm. but never written down. Right. And this year we actually got someone from the College of Food Science. Really? And now we're closing the loophole because we <laughs> got through it. <laughs> so this will be the only student ever not from the design or textile school to be in art to wear? Yes. Oh, very cool. Uh, and so, and you're talking about closing the loophole. Now, you're the director. Um, how did you end up being the director, Eleanor? Um, well, I wasn't even here for the show last year. I was in Prague. Uh-huh. Um, and I got a call from the past director over the summer. And she just called me in to talk about it because they had like a list of people they were thinking of. And they got me. <laughs> Very cool. Yep. And so it's been it's been quite a bit of work, I imagine. When did you start planning this year's Art to Wear? Um, I think we started basically the first week of the semester in August. Very cool. So it's been yeah. like nine months. And so <laughs> and so this year's Art to Wear is uh Wednesday, April fourteenth, which is in two days, uh at seven thirty, and it's at Reynolds. Uh now the last one I went to was I guess two years ago. Um, out on the quarter of North Carolina, is, uh, why did you guys make the decision? Did you is it is it a weather? You're tired of crossing your fingers and hoping it doesn't rain. Yeah, it's weather. It's size. It's growing every year. Uh-huh. Um, it's there's more availability for changing in lighting and sound and acoustics and everything. Yeah, it just sort of works better than. I think it's more professional. Uh-huh. Now, one of the things I think is really cool is there's there's a lot that happens on campus, um, and this is one of those things that um, people can actually come and just sit in, I guess, like the general admission area for free, but then you're actually able to sell tickets. Now, what kind of marketing have you guys done? It's very clever that you're able to sell tickets to people when they're able to sit further away for free, and it, and it works. So what have you guys done to sort of market the event? We have started a lot of events this year with restaurants. Um, we had one at Ruckus Pizza and Cueva de Lobos just as a way to get our name out there. And also, we've gotten a lot of press from the News Observer, uh-huh. the ND Week, and it's just getting our name out there and people understanding what a big deal it is. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and so this year, specifically, Eleanor, don't be shy. You're the director. What, what are you guys doing new this year that you haven't done in the past? The biggest thing is we have introduced three awards. The first one is the Juror's Choice Award, which will be chosen by the three judges that picked the 12 designers that got mm-hmm. in. And that's an award of $1,500. Wow. And we also have the Audience Choice, which is you pay for ballots and you vote for your favorite designer. And they win $500. And then we also have, after the show, people who couldn't make it can vote on the News Observer to vote for the People's Choice Awards. Uh-huh. So... It's up the competition a little bit. Yeah, so you guys have have gotten some, uh, you've worked well with News and Observer, it sounds like. They've been pretty supportive then. Yeah, actually, Lauren is on the front page of the Life section today. Is that right, Lauren? Check it out. Oh, very cool, yeah. Uh, And and you're doing doing an after party this year as well, right? Yeah, we have an after party at Busy Bee. Um, I really wanted, last year, I feel like, I don't know, I wanted to make sure that all the students could be involved in the after party as well, because this whole thing is about involving the students uh-huh. so it is all ages and no cover and it is dj dj'd by dj yes butnik miles holst who also uh-huh. is nc state and then dj pancakes 
Oh, very cool. Yeah. Miles Holst is all over town, isn't he? He is. Yeah. <laughs> Famous. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems like the design school has a has a pretty good network for stuff like that as well. Um, what Jake is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one of the one of the problems with student run things, maybe not problem, but one of the unique things about student run things like Art to Wear is that you know you've done a lot of work and presumably you'll move on and leave and move out of town or whatever, um, and they sort of have to start over with different people. Um, have there been any faculty members or anyone like that who sticks around every year to help out? Um, actually, the original advisor that had been with the show since it started in 2002, Vita Plume, is still with the show, and she's been a huge help. And we also have Dr. Istuk, who's been, she's with College of Textiles, and she's been with it, I think, six years, maybe? And then we also brought on a new advisor this year, Dr. Catherine Carroll from Textiles. Uh, so is this, I guess, design school, um, design school does a lot that I, that I know about uh, throughout the year, and I assume the textile school does well. Is this one of the bigger things that, that happens at NC State throughout the year, would you say? Definitely. Um, this is probably the most amount of uh, coverage or credit that um, design. I think design and textiles gets all year. Uh -huh. um, it's the most um, highly, attended. highly attended fashion show in North Carolina. Wow. Wow. Uh, and so when, are you guys graduating this year? I'm, I am. So I'm Lauren, not. you are. Okay. I'm in a five-year program on purpose. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Five years for a good reason. Yes. Okay. So, so will you be involved next year? Is that up to you? Um, possibly not as a director. Uh -huh. I'd like to do something behind the scenes or maybe help the new director. You said that very resolutely. Not as a director. <laughs> it's been really fun, but I also want to like start planning what I'm going to do when I graduate or after I graduate and work on mm -hmm. jobs and such. So is, is being a designer uh, in art to wear, is that something that's pretty good for a, a student's resume? I speaking hope so. as a civil <laughs> Speaking as a civil engineer, someone who has very little perspective, I mean, it seems like that's a pretty good thing, pretty highly coveted. I hope so. Yeah. It's on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks good on your resume, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so Wednesday night, 7.30 at Reynolds Coliseum on campus, um, are the tickets still available? Yeah, the tickets will be on sale online until 7 tomorrow, um, and then you can buy them at the door, cash only. Mm -hmm. You can also buy um, merchandise at the door. There's going to be t-shirts, professionally printed, um, scarves printed by the designers, and buttons made by Really friends. cute buttons, and they're only a dollar. Yeah. Really cute buttons. Okay. <laughs> I'll cool be sure. I'll be sure to be on the lookout <laughs> for them. Um, and that website to buy the tickets until tomorrow at 7 is ncsuarttowear.com. Very cool. Well, uh, we look forward to it. Thank you for stopping by to talk about Art to Wear, and we'll see you in Reynolds on Wednesday night at 7.30. See you there. <laughs> Tonight on Community Campus, out on the Triangle, looking back at the weekend that was in the Full Frame Film Festival. And if you could give a strategy for, say, people who are trying to see as many films as possible, what, what is your strategy? Four go sleep for three days. Go, go in line ready to, to battle and pick the ones that you think you're going to get into. Um, and then just uh, try to stay awake. This past weekend, I was fortunate enough to spend its entirety at the festival in Durham. Through my experience as an NC State student fellow, I managed to mingle with a various assortment of people, including volunteer staff, students, filmmakers, and avid documentary lovers. First, I spoke to Joshua Clements, a film grad student at NC State, who was standing patiently in line for a film. Well, one of the, one of the great things about Full Frame is that 
you have an incredible proximity to filmmakers. Unlike other film festivals I've been to, um, they're maybe sitting next to you or sitting in front of you or behind you. And everybody talks to everybody. So, I mean, I sat in front, sat behind the filmmakers of uh, a Thelonious Monk uh, kind of concert film last night. And uh, I got to watch the guy who's the jazz pianist in the movie kind of jam along to watching himself in the movie. Joshua was right, as I found myself having a one-on-one conversation with Marshall Curry, the director of Racing Dreams, which premiered at Full Frame this year. Making documentaries is always kind of a tough business there. There's no money. There, you know, Everybody's kind of competing for the same grant dollars and the same broadcast slot. So it's, it's, it's really tough. But the, the good thing about documentaries right now is that for probably the first time in history, the technology of filmmaking has become so cheap that anybody can make movies that can be played in theaters and movies that can can be on tv with you know macintoshes and final cut pro editing software and and hd cameras that just cost a couple thousand bucks the the movie that i have that's playing here at the festival is called racing dreams and it's about three kids uh, two boys and a girl who are 11 12 and 13 who want to grow up to be nascar drivers and they race these super fast go-karts that go 70 miles an hour in what's kind of the little league for nascar shooting that brought me down to north carolina a lot um two of the characters live in north carolina and and a lot of the a lot of the racing happens down here um so i've loved you know i love north carolina and actually when i was younger i lived here my wife is uh is from charlotte and went to duke so uh this whole area is is pretty familiar curry was recognized in 2005 as one of the 25 new faces of independent film by filmmaker magazine as i made my way over to the last minute line of wasteland Lucy Walker's documentary about a Brazilian artist who makes a connection with recyclable workers in Rio de Janeiro. I ran into a former professor, Tom Wallace. Um, it's just a great community. Um, it's It manages to be really comprehensive. I mean, it tracks people from all over the world, but it's also local and very community-oriented. I've been on the selection committee with Full Frame for probably 10 years or so. The selection committee is the main body responsible for determining which films are screened at the festival every year. By the way, Walker's film, Wasteland, won the award that I consider the most prestigious, the Full Frame Audience Award. Rob Lampkin and Thet Sambath won the Ann Dellinger Grand Jury Award for their film, Enemies of the People, which follows Sambath as he attempts to uncover why his family died in Cambodia's killing fields in the late 1970s and illuminates the real story behind the Khmer Rouge's genocide of nearly 2 million people. Another award winner was El Masadia, his film, The Poot, won the Full Frame Jury Award for the Best Short. The movie is a 40-minute look at the crafting culture of handmade carpets of Persia. For more information on the award-winning films of this year's festival, please check out their website at www.fullframefest.org. The curtain is closed on another successful Full Frame Film Festival, but that doesn't mean that the folks at Full Frame are done entertaining or educating Triangle residents. Deidre Hodge, executive director of the Full Frame Festival, speaks with us a little bit about some of the events that they have planned over the next year centered around the American Tobacco Campus. You're going to see us holding a lot more events. I know um, historically there have been a few, but first of all, we will be doing, we have a new sponsor, which is uh, the Birds Bees Greater Good Foundation, and they are sponsoring a summer series. We will be doing movies on the lawn. And that will be, uh, as I said, uh, sponsored by the Birds Bees Greater Good Foundation, and that will be a series of environmental films played at night in the summer. And, you know, there's lots of food and drink at the American Tobacco Campus, so people can come and watch these movies for free and have a drink and have something to eat and enjoy the summer air. So that's one of the first things we're doing. I hope to have series all, all year round. You know, we do screenings 
during the year that our members are allowed to attend for free. And those happen also at the American Tobacco Campus in Bay 7. And we will continue to do that. Um, I'm looking forward to doing a lot more programming during the year. I'd also like to see us more present in the schools in Durham. And uh, that just requires coordinating with the local schools and uh, really bringing documentaries into the schools and um, allowing children to understand, you know, younger people to understand what a documentary is and how accessible they are, that they're not just quote-unquote educational films. If you have any memories of this year's full frame that stand out, or if you want to talk about any other arts that are going on around the triangle, send us an email, publicaffairs at wknc.org. You've been listening to Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. WKNC 88.1. This is Chris Chaffee and Alyssa Diavonzo for Eye on the Triangle. With a history dating back to 1939, the Food and Nutrition Service has been helping low or no income citizens obtain nutritious foods to survive. Funded by the United States Department of Agriculture, FNS is administered by individual states. More commonly referred to as food stamps, this federal agency within the USDA has the fewest number of staff members but the largest budget. According to Reuters, more than 35 million Americans received food stamp benefits in June 2009, which was up 22% from June 2008. This set a new record as our country continued to grapple with the worst recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The food stamp program, which helps cover the cost of groceries for one in nine Americans, grew at a similar pace to the U.S. unemployment rate, which stood at 9.4% in July. June was the seventh straight month in a row where food stamp rolls set a record. The average benefit in June was $133.12 per person. I on the Triangle talked to Dean Simpson, Chief of Economic and Family Services for the state of North Carolina, and Langdon Morris, an EBT recipient working for the AmeriCorps program in Boston, to get a better idea of what the program is like and the challenges that FNS recipients face. Ms. Simpson describes what her job in the program entails. I'm Chief of Economic Family Services, and what that means is that we at the state office, we are the ones that receive the regulations from the federal government, and then we put them into state policies. And we make sure we develop the manual and all the policies that go along with how um, a county administers the food nutrition program. We monitor what counties do to make sure that they're um, administering the program accurately. Um, we work with the legislators on any type of bill or anything that we want, any changes that we want to make in the program, then we are responsible for working with our legislators to make changes. While the name of the program was officially changed in 2008 by the federal government, the goal of the FNS program remains the same. The goal is to provide a means for families to purchase nutritious or food to feed their families. And it is um, based on a family's income that they have coming in. So the allotment is based, there's a budget that's worked out, so it's based on what the income is versus what their rent or utilities or mortgage payment is. And then an allotment is determined based on that. And it's to supplement their food budget. We also spoke to Langdon Morris, a recipient of the Food Assistance Program. My name is Langdon Morris. I received EBT food stamps. Uh, I moved to Boston in August, 
and I started uh, receiving uh, food stamps in September. I work for an AmeriCorps program called City Year, working in an elementary school, a K-8 school. I receive a stipend, so I receive some pay, but it's not a lot. The FNS website states that to receive benefits, the applicant must provide information about their income and their property. Well, the, um, the process of getting food stamps or, you know, being approved for food stamps is just a, a bit time-consuming. I would equate it to maybe going to the DMV to get your driver's license on a very busy day in my neighborhood because there's a lot of people who need assistance. So you want to get there, even if you get there as the um, assistance office is opening, there's going to be a line waiting for the doors to open. So getting the card and making sure that you have the right documentation to get improved can be a little bit of a process, but it's a waiting game. Like I said, almost like the DMV. So you're you're sitting in a waiting room with a bunch of people, a very large waiting room, and you're waiting on a specific caseworker to go over your paperwork and to, to make sure that you still live where you live, that you're still making the amount of money that you're making. In, in order to approve you for food stamps. So I wouldn't say it's super busy as, like a, you know, a subway would be, but it's more of a, a more strenuous DMV-like experience. And, that, yeah, absolutely, there have been times where it's overwhelming in there. Well, talking to Mr. Morris about benefits he received, I asked him if his benefits were sufficient. Uh, yeah, I feel they're more than sufficient. With my income and my rent, I'm eligible for $200 a month in, in food stamp benefits which is $50 a week for me, that's more than enough. According to the FNS website, the perceptions of the program are changing. No longer are they using coupons to redeem for food. Now all benefits are put on something that looks similar to a credit card. There's no actual stamps involved or bills or anything like that. Honestly, it's, like, it's a lot like a debit card. You swipe it, you have a PIN number, and it lets you know your balance after you make a purchase for food. Mr. Morris says that the assistance he receives has helped him budget much more effectively. However, he says his buying habits remain the same. I live on a stipend for $200 a week, which is tax. So, and, you know, my rent is $400, so two weeks' pay isn't enough to pay my rent. There, you know, therefore, plus you add in $100 utilities, it's a, it's a tricky process. Being able to budget on a small stipend, so it absolutely has been a tremendous help. So that my grocery needs are, are the same. So really, the only thing that I can't get... You can't buy hot food. For instance, if there's a, you know, a hot food buffet in a particular grocery store, you can't get that. And you can't, you know, you can't purchase alcohol or tobacco. But that's not what it's for anyway. So as far as what I'm buying to eat, which is what it's for, my, it hasn't changed how I shop at all. According to the New York Times, the number of people receiving benefits has exploded to levels where one in eight adults and one in four children are members of the program. This equates to over 35 million Americans receiving FNS benefits. Just to give you an example, let's say five years ago, an, an average caseload size for uh, a maintenance worker, which is a worker that deals with ongoing caseload, would be probably around 500. Now, today, the caseloads are anywhere from uh, 800, 900, up to 1,000 in some counties. Um, so the numbers have almost doubled over the last five to six years, which makes it extremely difficult for North Carolina as a state to maintain an accuracy rate, um, which is at a good level because workers are having to really push and get the work out the door so that clients can receive their benefits. So it's extremely difficult and stressful for them. While the workload has increased exponentially, people are working to solve these problems. 
Each year, the food and nutrition caseload increases. That's because of uh, that's just naturally number of people moving in and uh, so the caseloads will increase but over the last couple of years due to the downturn in the economy of course we've had a real influx of people they've lost their job and so therefore they're having to come in and apply for benefits to get them through the month um what are we doing to cope with it one thing that we're looking at is of course um the Obama administration has provided some administrative money that has helped uh, with some of the relief that will help relieve the counties. They can hire staff with it. Uh, they're able to get staff on board that can uh, deal with the extra people that are coming in to apply. So that's one thing that, that has been a real relief to the counties. Many government programs have limitations on how long you can receive benefits. However, the FNS program does not have such limitations. There's not a limit, um, but we do a recertification on a case every six months. Uh, we are required to do a face-to-face -face interview with any client once a year, uh, but we do send out a report every six months for you to complete to give us back information that has your income changed, has your household changed, anything different from what you reported at your initial application. But as long as you meet the income eligibility and meet all of the eligibility criteria, then you can receive. More recently, Ms. Simpson says that changes to the program have been made to accommodate different types of people. As um, time has gone on, several changes have been made, such as we're looking at giving states more options on what policies they can implement. For an example, we have an option now where we can up the income limit. Uh, that a family can receive by making them receive information that says that they are eligible for TANF services. So that means that right now the income limit's at 130% of poverty and we'll ha we have an option that we can go up to an even higher income limit. So some things have been really good. Of course, there's been things like a five-year limit for anyone that comes in from another country or is like an alien, not necessarily illegal, but if they come in, have a sponsor, they're not able to receive benefits for five years. Uh, some of the policies are in place regarding drug felons, and so there's been some changes that have come in. According to Ms. Simpson, children of parents that receive food and nutrition services benefits are also eligible for free and reduced lunch. We do provide them information. One of the um, good things about someone receiving food and nutrition services is that their children are eligible for the free and reduced lunch. So there's not a, an eligibility criteria that they have to go through. If they're an active food and nutrition person, then their children uh, will be eligible for the free and reduced lunch. So we provide a, a report um, and give them an update on the list of the children and so that they can um, go ahead and authorize them. That's a good thing. According to Ms. Simpson, the FNS program is also initiating programs to try and educate parents and students about the benefits of eating right in an effort to change eating habits. One thing that w that's part of the food nutrition program is um, a piece of it called outreach and nutrition education. And one thing that we're re really working on over the next year is how to help people make healthier choices when they're purchasing their food. You know, we want to make sure people know about fresh fruits and vegetables. We want to make sure that school-age 
kids receive nutrition education on choosing healthy foods versus sweets or fats, and that is something that we're really devoting a lot of time and energy and effort into. We have um, partners out in the community, uh, such as the uh, Poe Center, if you're familiar with that here in Wake County. We have one in Dine, which is in Durham County, Surrey County, NC State, UNCG. Uh, We have lots of partners that are helping in providing nutrition education classes so that school kids will know how to make healthy choices. And we also want to get that message to the adult or to the parent who is providing and cooking the foods that they're using fresh fruits and vegetables, which um, is much better. So that's a big piece that we want to work on in the coming year. After discussing his use of the FNS program with others, Mr. Morris has encountered an interesting debate about whether his usage of the FNS program is fair to others who might be in more need. He justifies his decision to use food and nutrition services by how his service benefits the community. I live in a you know lower income neighborhood in Boston called Roxbury. So my experience is a little is a little bit different because a lot of these people are feeding multiple children, and I think that one interesting debate is well, does someone like me deserve assistance as much as someone who is trying to feed their children and stuff like that? So I know some people in my program don't accept the assistance even though they're eligible for it because they don't feel entitled to the government's money if they feel that they can afford it on their own. What I say to that is because we're an AmeriCorps program, which, you know, with the Serve America Act is expanding um, on a national level, I feel that the service I provide for what I'm paid, I feel like I'm doing the nation a service. And that I would be, it's that the country and that tax money benefiting me in that way I don't have any problem with it because I feel that my actions and my job compensate for that. I also feel that genuinely, once all the bills are paid, I don't have a lot, and that it's just it's a huge help. Uh, food stamps are a lifesaver. I, you know, I'm a big fan of it, and I guess that you know, I look forward to making more money at some point in my life. But very grateful that I have assistance when I need it. Mr. Morris also discussed how the people who do not have assistance survive. I feel that a majority of them have have some sort of supplemental income other than the program they were in. Either they have another job or they have parents who can afford to help them pay something or they they were saving up before they got into this program and they can afford it. I mean, you, I'm sure that you could afford just to eat with, with our salary, but it you would be spending the entirety of your of your pay, I feel. In tough economic times, food stamps have become an important safety net for many Americans. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the program's effectiveness has continued to increase since its implementation, and studies have shown that 98% of the people who participate are actually eligible for their benefits. Recent reforms to the program, such as the implementation of the EBT card and the Aggressive Nutrition Education Program, has taught people how to eat nutritious foods and has improved the diets and well-being of many Americans. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities also says that the program is a key support for working families. It serves nearly twice the number of low-wage working Americans than those who rely on welfare. While the system isn't perfect, the FNS program has made serious strides in the way they run their program in recent years and continues to be a valuable weapon in our nation's battle against hunger. For Eye on the Triangle, this has been Chris Chaffee and Alyssa Diavanzo. Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. 
a spotlight on those who go above and beyond. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle's Wolfpacker of the Week on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Seja Hindi. With us here today is Assistant English Professor David Reeder. Reeder is researching the way to bring writing and the English language together with new media technology and more math-based language. Professor Reeder, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the research that you're doing? It would be my pleasure. I was trained in rhetoric and writing studies, and so most of what I do is is within one or both of those fields. They do tend to overlap. Most of the research that I'd want to talk about today is within digital writing studies, and I think one thing that's important to explain is that this isn't the kind of writing that you would do in English 101 in a, in a frosh English class. It's not even the kind of writing that you would practice in um, an upper-level course in rhetoric or literature. This is the kind of writing where... Um, we try to pi- pry apart the visual and the verbal in order to find new ways of exploring what writing as an inscription technology can produce, what it can be. And if you think about it, writing is, after all, a visual technology. It's an inscription technology that's conventionally or traditionally meant to represent, to inscribe the sounds of our voice. But it doesn't just have to be that. That is, it's, own, it's really just a conventional definition. So if we move beyond convention and start thinking about how we can use a visual technology to explore the possibilities of not just phonetic thought and expression, but really any kind of sound at any kind of ratio, then I'd say that's where I begin. A lot of what I do would probably be characterized as experimental, and most all of it is connected to some type of digital media. Has there been a particular project that's been especially challenging or one that you really enjoyed working on? Yeah. In fact, there's a project that just came out in January. It was just published in a journal called Kairos, and it's titled Typographia. It's really two publications in one. One is an essay, and the other is a digital writing project, which is what I thought I'd talk about for a moment. The digital writing project is comprised of 26, and I'll call these image texts. I don't know how else to describe them, um, at least on air. I think the best thing is just to look at them online. The project is comprised of 26 image texts. Basically, what I did is I took a small JPEG image and some text, and I wrote a software program that mashes together some of the visual and some of the textual data together to create a hybrid image text. And each of the images represents a part of raw that represents one of the 26 letters of the alphabet. So, for example, B is for Bell Tower, M is for the MLK Memorial, and the idea was to dramatize the extent to which Raleigh, like any city, is really written from the ground up. It's really hard to look anywhere when you're walking around Raleigh or any city and not see letters, words, some kind of character. And so the project uses software to mash together these two otherwise distinct forms of communication to really bring together the experience that I had within the city. When did you start getting involved in this type of research? I think it, it really started for me in grad school. It was in the mid-90s when I, had start, when I started my Ph.D. program and my Ph.D. studies. And I was introduced to the web. It was still very new. Netscape was um, in its very first version, just after the Mosaic browser, if anyone remembers that. And I really took to markup, to the HTML, the markup language, to programming on the web. Immediately, it made a lot of sense to me. And I think in part that's because I had a a computer in the house as a teenager. In the mid-80s, I had a... you know, I had an Apple IIe in, on which I was programming in BASIC. So when the web came out, it just you know, it was like a duck to water. It just made a lot of sense. And then from there, started learning about different programming languages and all the opportunities that new media artists and scholars were starting to explore. 
and you're currently working on a book. Is that right? I am. I have a book that is uh, contracted and that I'm drafting right now. It should be all done by the end of the summer, and barring any obstacles, it should be out in the late fall, early spring. It's titled Suasive Iterations, and it is a series of studies of writing within computational new media. Just to explain it simply, there are six to seven chapters in the book, and in each chapter I've written a software program in the ActionScript programming language, which is the language primarily found within the Flash application environment. And each of these software projects is meant to help foreground computational issues within the fields of rhetoric and writing on some level. I mean, one of the methodological inspirations for this book is a group that was founded in the mid-20th in France and was comprised of mathematicians, professors, fiction writers, poets, who wanted to explore the possibilities of literature, poetry, and language generally by plugging it in, for all intents and purposes, to mathematics. And so uh, the way I look at it and the way I explain it in the introduction to this book, you know, computational new media in many ways is math-based, at least generally so. And so, like the Ulipo, which is the name of this group, I'm interested in seeing what happens when we mash together or bring together writing and a math-based form of language, like a particular programming language. One thing I find interesting is that a lot of times people say you're either humanities-minded or you're scientifically-minded, but you seem to be both. What do you think about that perception? Absolutely. I do think that, that that is changing. I think, unfortunately, that split that you're describing has been around. I mean, C.P. Snow in the, in the 50s or 60s wrote a lecture called The Two Cultures. He popularized the idea that there are people in the humanities and people in the sciences who just really speak different languages, but that two-culture split is really coming together in some new hybrid ways. Are there any students that are working with you on your projects right now? One student that comes to my mind, and he is in fact in the PhD program, is David Gruber. We developed a flash project that enables you to interact with a poem by a well-known poet named Mark Strand. There are other people besides David Gruber, but he's, he is one who comes to mind. And that was Assistant Professor of English at NC State, David Reeder. To find out how Reader gets the inspiration for his work, find out how to get involved, or to see some of his research, make sure to check out the links in the post-show blog on wknc.org slash blog. You listen to... Uh on the Triangle right here on WKNC 88.1. I'm Jacob. I'm in for Sedja Hindi, who should be back next week. If you have any questions or comments about any of tonight's program or suggestions for future show ideas, send us an email at uh, publicaffairs at wknc.org. Uh, show's ending a little bit early tonight, so we have a special treat for you. Going to do, uh, in the spirit of Hear This, we're going to do a sneak preview of some new local releases. Uh, joining me on the studio is the host of Local Beat, Cade. Yeah, thank you. My name's Adam from Cade, host of the Local Beat. We're going to listen to two tracks here. One is by local band out of Carboro, North Carolina, Mandolin Orange. They're releasing a brand new debut album. It's called Quiet Little Room, and it's going to be released May 1st at the local 506. Uh, the Quiet Little Room is by far one of my favorite albums so far in 2010. It's very country, Americana, and folky. And we're going to listen to a song called We Little Bird, or We Bird, I should say. Next, we're going to listen to a song off the Drug Horse compilation album it's called drug horse one we'll be hearing the light pines song climbing towards you this compilation features six songs by three different artists ryan gustafson the light pines and max indian each with two songs we'll start off with mandolin orange wee bird and then go into the light pines with climbing towards you 
A wee bird chirped and swore my life was a lie And I thought that the fox was sly But oh boy, is that fox is And once more, that's uh, Light Pines off the new Drug Horse compilation EP uh, with Climbing Towards You. It's been perfect weather recently to get some grass stains. Uh, with that in mind, Tyler Everett is here to talk about sports and uh, what's been going on with baseball. Uh, baseball had a big series against Carolina this week. Baseball, uh, Pack was ranked 28. Carolina was number 20. Uh, took place at UNC, their beautiful new baseball stadium. Um, if you haven't got out there next time, the Pax in Chapel Hill, definitely head out there to check that out. They've got quite a stadium going on over there. But as far as what happened on the Diamond, um, Friday night was not pretty for Pac fans. Uh, a 14-7 loss. NC State bounced back, much to uh, the excitement of everyone in Wolfpack Nation. A big 14-6 win Saturday over the Heels, and then a 9-6 loss Sunday. But the uh, series finale was not without some drama uh, first five innings were quiet offensively for both teams. Sogard, Alex Sogard started the game for the pack, pitched well, kept the heels off the board, and then a uh, couple runs for both teams had it 3-2 pack, and then Carolina broke the game up and really took over. They had a, they scored six runs in the bottom of the seventh. A leadoff triple they got, and then uh, so they have a man on third with uh, no outs. Looks like it's going to be trouble. State's pitcher gets the next two outs. Looks like he might get out of the jam. But then uh, the floodgates broke open. Carolina scored six runs to take a big lead. The Pack actually got three runs in the bottom of the ninth with some little bit of late heroics, but not enough. The tying, the tying batter did come to the plate with two men on, but he was retired and the game was over. Even after the disappointing losing two out of three to the heels, Pack has still won six of the last nine. They're twenty-one and twelve overall. They're six and nine in conference. Their next action, they've got two home games this week. They play um, NC Central Tuesday. They beat them twenty-four-six the first time out. Central's had a heck of a year so far. Not not really what they would have liked to see. They're one and thirty-one, and then the Pack will get a rematch with Wilmington, who won the first game nine to six. Wilmington's nineteen and. 13, they are hot right now. They've won four in a row, five out of six, and eight out of 11, and just swept Delaware. So should be quite a showdown Wednesday evening at Doak Field for the Pack versus uh, the in-state rival UNC Wilmington. Just to change gears, um, football had their second scrimmage this week, yeah, didn't they? Uh, Anticipation for football is starting to build a little bit. This past weekend was a second scrimmage. Um, obviously, most fans know this this coming weekend will be the uh, red and white game, a big deal if everybody hadn't seen any football in a while. But as far as the results of the most recent, their most recent action, Mike Glennon, um, as most know, if you don't, he's been the quarterback all spring. Russell Wilson is not doing spring football practice. Baseball is nothing new for him, but this is the first year he hasn't doubled up and done spring football practice, so it's, it's Glennon's show for the moment. He played pretty well Saturday, as far as the statistics would tell you, 17 of 28 for 170 yards and three touchdowns. T.J. Graham was a big kick returner his freshman year, caught a few passes. Last season ended short for him because of injuries, but he caught three touchdowns Saturday, so maybe he's back. Um, other big news, Dana Bible, we uh, – uh, all know about the diagnosis he got with, uh, I believe it was leukemia at the uh, rare type of leukemia at the end of the season. But he's back calling the plays, 
called the plays Saturday, so that's encouraging. And then on the defensive side of the ball, a couple standout performances. Uh, Daryl Cato Bishop had six tackles, three and a half of those in the backfield. Also had two sacks. Natanu Maggio, a defensive tackle, had nine tackles, two of those in the backfield. And Audie Cole, probably the most familiar name of the three that stood out Saturday, started last year, made seven tackles, two and a half behind the line, and he had a sack and a half as the pack uh, the PAC's final tune-up that the media is really going to know much about before Saturday's annual red and white game. Well, thank you very much, Tyler. Right, and Thank uh, you guys for listening. Thank you also for listening to On the Triangle here on WKNC 88.1 FM Raleigh.